so thankful that you're here this morning and a part of Outward Church. Uh, this morning we're going to be in uh, James chapter 2. We'll be picking up in verse 14, so you can turn there here in, in just a moment. But uh, t- today, just after the service, we're going to be uh, uh, redoing the stage and, and taking care of some things. And so uh, I'm just looking for a, a group of guys um, or, uh, just, or some burly women, I, I don't, whatever... Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to count you out, um, but uh, if you'd like to help, we won't call you Burley, I promise. But, uh, uh, but we're, we're going to be uh, redoing the stage in here, and next week, uh, God willing, it is going to be uh, very different, and so come uh, expecting uh, good things um, that might change your idea of what it looks like to be in a sanctuary. So that, that'll be fun, that we're especially doing that for uh, Christmas, for a Christmas program. And, uh, and we just wanted to change things up a little bit. So immediately after the service, we're going to be tearing some things down and taking care of some things. So we'd love to have you here. Again, uh, Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, so this is December 23rd, not Christmas Eve. December 23rd, we'll have two services, 6 o'clock and 7.30. And uh, we want to invite you to come along. We want to invite you to sing along. And our hope this year is that this is going to be a worshipful Christmas, one where we, where we are participating together in worship uh, of Jesus and, and, uh, and what he's done for us by, by coming to earth. Um, and so uh, uh, we're, we're going to be jumping into uh, to James chapter 2 here just shortly. One other thing, and that is uh, my wife, uh, Chris, she was just up here, and she asked you to fill out one of those cards. If you would do that for us, it would be very helpful. Um, especially as we're getting ready to begin the year. We want to see, um, we have a goal of having 90% of our church involved in community groups, in our OCs uh, throughout the city. Uh, our OCs are one of the primary ways that we, we reach out into the community. So when an event comes up or when the city asks us for help, uh, when our, the local schools are looking for help and so forth, we want to be able to call on our OCs uh, to be able to participate in that. They're not just a Bible study. They are a source of community. They're a source of, of, of uh, serving our community. And, uh, but ultimately, they are the fullest expression of being a part of the local church. The large gathering matters for sure, but it really doesn't mean much if you're not connected with God's people. And so we, we want to encourage you towards that. So fill out one of those cards, and then you can drop it in one of the boxes um, at any of the exit doors that would, they, they say give, but you can put one of those cards in there. And so, um, or you can talk to Matt Baldwin. He'll be out here at the yellow desk, uh, which is Grand Central, um, just after the service. So this last week, uh, I had a pretty exciting week. I came home, and um, my wife said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, the toilet is clogged. And, um, and I said, well, how long have you known that the toilet is clogged? And she said, well, it got clogged uh, this morning, and then I went in and I looked at the toilet, and it, it's clear that it had been clogged since this morning, and nobody, none of the kids uh, got the message, if you know what I'm saying. And so there was, there was a mess. And so I, uh, I uh, decided that I was pretty frustrated with that because I, I was just like, I, I wish somebody would have told me this, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of frustrated with that, and I wish the kids hadn't done this, and I was, you know, irritated that that was going on, and so I, you know, begrudgingly come home from work, and I'm like, on, I got to roll up my sleeves here, sorry. Um, I did then, too, but um, I also, yeah, yeah, but I, I, sometimes I try it. I try to have my sleeves rolled down, and I just, I, it just bugs me, so um, I don't know, um, and I can't talk and roll my sleeves at the same time, and so unless I'm talking about my sleeves. So this is an amazing, an amazing uh, transition in speaking. If, you, if you're studying to be a preacher, this is, this is a great way to do this. And so um, in any case, so I, I come home, horrible toilet mess. And so I'm frustrated with that. I'm frustrated with just with everything about it. And, and I'll just tell you that I hate plumbing. I hate having to do anything with plumbing. And part of the reason is because I'm not good at it. I mean, I, you could hire a wet rag and it would do better, a better job than I could do uh, on uh, plumbing. But it, regardless, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here just going, now I've got to deal with this. And so I get on there, I get on the plunger and I'm like, I'm, I am on a mission. And so I'm just like, 
ah, 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 like 30 minutes. I mean, my hand is hurting. I'm plunging it and plunging it and plunging it. Well, not coming. I'm trying to flush it, and it's filling up, and it's just gross, and it's nasty. And I'm plunging it and plunging it, and finally just go, okay, fine. I'll get my plumbing snake. So I go get my plumbing snake from somebody who borrowed it, and I, I bring that home, try to get that in there. And, you know, you're sitting here turning this thing, and my son is helping me, and he's like, Dad, what are you doing? Dad, what are you Dad, Dad. I'm like, stop it. And I'm trying to unplug this thing, and I'm just get, I'm getting frustrated with him. I'm frustrated because he was part of the problem here. And then, I'm, you know, I'm getting more frustrated with my wife who... You know, I wish you would have told me, and so I'm plunging, and I'm plunging, and I'm doing this thing, and I'm like, crap, um, uh, it's not working. And so I go, to, uh, I go down to Freddy's, and I pick up a, uh, another kind of snake. So I get one of the little hand crank snake with a little, it looks like a candy cane, not nearly as delicious, but uh, stick it in there, and then it just, you know, just turning that thing and turning it, and it will not come unplugged. And Marshall is giving me advice like the helpful eight-year-old he is. Well, Dad, I think you ought, to, you ought to get back like this, Dad, and you ought to do that. And I, that's not helping, right? And so I'm still doing this, still doing this. And so uh, we're going on like 24 hours now that the toilet's been plugged. Our only other toilet's downstairs, like, you know, down a passageway, down a hallway, and, and through here. And so I find, you know, it's like 10 o'clock at night. So I, I'm like, okay. I go to Walmart. Go to Walmart and try to find something there. Uh, nothing. Um, I, I go to the other Walmart. Nothing. I mean, it's 11 o'clock at night. My son is with me. It's crazy. Still can't get it. Next morning, get up, have a fight with my wife, and then because uh, I'm still upset. And then uh, so my father-in-law says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go to the store and get this acid. It will eat right through that, and then you'll be able to flush it. So I go, and I get sulfuric acid. And I dump it in the toilet. And, it, and, and so now there's not only nastiness in there. Now there's real nastiness in there. There's acid and there's lots of nastiness. And so now there's all this acid in there and all this stuff. And I leave it all day and I come back. And the toilet is still plugged. Ah! Oh, I'm so upset at this point. I cannot figure this out. So I finally go down to the plumbing store again, get another snake. Somebody lets me borrow one. I go down there, try to do it. I'm sitting there just cranking on this thing. Will not come undone. And I finally reach the point of, I'm going to actually have to touch this toilet, right? I'm going to have to get in there. So I finally, now I have to empty the toilet by hand. I'm not going to get into that, but that was, that was gross. Uh, so I do that. Very upset with everybody. Everyone in the world I was angry at at that point, right? <laughs> There's nobody, because, you know, everyone else is the problem here. Undo the bolts very gingerly, trying not to get stuff on me. Lift up the toilet. And before I go any further, every morning I take a shower. And then I take, a, you know, a Q-tip, and I uh, throw it in the toilet, right? Every morning, throw a, a Q-tip in the toilet. Throw a Q-tip in the toilet. Throw a Q-tip in the toilet. I mean, who knows how many, how many Q-tips could be in this toilet now? I mean, like there's, I mean, there's been a lot that I'm assuming are going down the drain, right? I lift the thing up, and it, it looks like a, uh, like a thatch, like this, and Q-tips poking out the bottom of this toilet. And I look down there, and I don't know how long it's been like that, but it's been catching stuff for a long time. And so I had to dig that baby out, right? And the realization begins to sink in that this is actually my fault. And I've had no mercy on anybody else in my thoughts, in my actions. And really the one who needed mercy was me. Let's look at the passage. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Is it possible to be saved when you don't have works, when you haven't been doing good things? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, 
be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, the the main gist of this passage is, is pretty clear. Let me just say it right up front. Like, if you claim to be a Christian, and yet there's no works to substantiate that claim, your claim of being a Christian is not true. It's just really that simple. It's, it's, it's just that simple. If you claim to be a Christian and yet you never engage with people who have needs, then your claim that you are a Christian is null and void. It's not true. And it's a huge caution because we're not just talking about, you know, saved in some other way. We are talking about eternal damnation, hell, Separation from God eternally, this is what we're talking about. And the reason why this is controversial is because it's saying uh, you, you, need, you need to serve other people, uh, and if you don't, uh, there's a problem. There's a problem with your salvation. There's, a, there's an issue in your life. But the other issue is that the Apostle Paul repeatedly says over and over again, that it is not by works of the law that you get right with God. Let me explain that at the top. The Apostle Paul is talking about the beginning of your Christian life. The way to begin a Christian life with God is only through Jesus Christ, and it is only by faith in Christ alone that we get to have relationship with God. He's talking about justification from the perspective of the beginning of the Christian life. And then if you go to the end of your Christian life, James, it's as if James is standing at the end of your life and he's looking backwards and he's saying this. He's looking at justification from the end of life. And he's saying this. He's saying, if there was a real decision here, if you really have experienced God and placed faith in him, then what's going to be seen peppered throughout your life is the reality that you're concerned for other people, that you're concerned for them, that this is, what, this is how you live your life. And so James is looking at the end of life. He's viewing justification from here, and he's saying, if that's really true, then what will have happened in your life is that you will have served people. I wanted to make that clear from the beginning so that there are, are, if there's people in here that don't have a relationship with God, perhaps you're not connected with a local church or what have you, Many people get this wrong. They believe that they need to clean themselves up, do what's right in order for them to be acceptable to God. But that is not the case. God is the one who accepts us surely by grace. He has mercy on us, uh, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. We don't have a to-do list. God has a done list. Jesus is the one who is done. He has finished it. He has done all of the works necessary for your Christian life. But if this is true, 
If you have received this by, uh, by faith, then what's going to happen is this, is that you're going to have works that carry that out. I wanted to make that clear from the beginning. This is not a question, the, the first verse here, it's not a question of right versus wrong, but it's a question of saved versus unsaved. Uh, understand what's hanging in the balance. It's not whether you're right or wrong, it's whether you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ. And as, the, uh, and as a result, are you going to be with God eternally in heaven? Are you going to be saved? Are you saved here and now? That's, that's what's at, at stake right now. And so what James is saying is this. It's possible for us to question someone's faith when they refuse to engage in serving other people when they refuse to have mercy on others verse 15 the problem is illustrated if a brother or sister so this is especially someone in the community of faith and it's not limited to that but let's just say right now he's talking about people especially within the context of the local church if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? If you give a common greeting, hey, good to see you, have fun, hope you're doing well. When you know that there's stuff that's going on in their life, that in and of itself is sin. That in and of itself shows a lack of faith in God. It shows a lack of trust in him, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but it's overlooking the needs of the people around you, and it says something about the state of your heart, the state of your salvation in Jesus Christ. So here's his thesis statement in verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what he means by this is lifeless faith, lifeless faith is dead faith. If, if there's nothing to prove that you have faith, you don't have faith. And that's a scary thought. He means what he says. He's just very clear. He's very blunt. And essentially, it's wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking to say, I belong to a church or I attend church on some amount of regular basis, or maybe you don't even attend church, maybe you are just outside of the church and you just kind of recognize God as being, yeah, I believe in God. But you never, you never really sacrificially serve other people fulfilling the needs that they have. What this is saying is that this is wishful thinking. This is wishful thinking. But it's not just limited to people who have, who are, you know, barely attend or, um, uh, you know, attend on a semi-regular basis. We're talking about church members here. We're talking about people that have been baptized. We're talking about people who are teaching churches. We're talking about people who are teaching Sunday school class, who are serving on Thanksgiving with us. We're talking about all of us, all of us. I've said this over and over again, but James is a great book for us right now. Because of this, in our culture, one of the biggest problems that our culture has is that we claim to have faith, and yet we don't have the actions that follow with it. Their conclusions are wrong in, in many cases because they say, I do more, uh, more good than you, so I'm more saved than you are. But the truth is that that doesn't fly. We'll get to that in a second. Here's his, his first issue. His first issue is this. This is what our response might be in this, and, and I've heard this. Not from anybody that I can think of right now, but if you're thinking this way, uh, you should be careful. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He's talking to an imaginary person, which could be dangerous in some circumstances. Uh, maybe he needs medication, but he's talking to somebody and he's, he's essentially got this made up argument. And he says, this is what I hear all the time. Oh, uh, you know, uh, I, get, I need to look back at what he says. Uh, you have faith and I have works. You're somebody who, who has the gift of faith. You have faith and, and, and I have works and, you know, we're one body. And so I'm, I'm somebody who's just really into serving the community. And then this, this person says, I'm really somebody who's just, I have a lot of faith. I just, I have this spiritual gift of faith. And essentially, it's, it is the splitting 
It's the dissection of the Christian life in an inappropriate way. And it's essentially saying this, that the Christian life can be lived like this or it can be lived like that. It can be lived in one of these uh, several different ways. And I've heard this over and over again. That's not my gift. That's, I, I'm not really into that. Or, or you might say, uh, this is my gift, and I'm not really, I'm just not, I just don't have a lot of faith in that, but I serve a lot. And what uh, James is saying here is he's saying that it is not two possibilities within the Christian life. That is not what he's talking about. He's not saying there's this or there's this. He's saying it's one thing. It is faith combined with works. It is faith combined with works. The truth is this. That faith and works are inseparable. They're absolutely inseparable. They, you cannot remove one from the other. You cannot be a bench-riding Christian. You're not some, you cannot be somebody who says that you're a Christian but never engages with the community of faith and with the larger community in serving and helping with needs, fulfilling needs, looking at the plight of the people that are around us, the helpless, the poor, the migrant, the immigrant, the single mom, the widow, the kids in foster care. You cannot say that you're a Christian if you never engage on some level with people who have great needs. It just, you can't do it. It's impossible. That is, that is not Okay, and so what he says is he says, uh, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And what he's saying is this, he's saying that we're, you know, show me. He's saying this, if faith cannot be seen, it's dead. If, if there's no objective evidence that you have faith other than the fact that you attend a service or that you claim that you have a relationship with God, or that on some level or another you're spiritual, if there's nothing else, if, there, if, if that's it, it's a false claim. It's a false claim. You should at least be worried that it is a false claim and that there isn't real faith there. Show me means if I cannot see my faith in action, it is dead. It's lifeless. There is no life there. A serious caution. And what's our next problem is this, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What's he saying there? He's saying there's some of us who have theological arrogance. The content that we think that we know about God, the things that we say that we believe about God and stuff, like we know all the right answers. It, what he says here is he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. What's he talking about? He's talking about Deuteronomy 6, 4. And Jews, or good Jews during this time, and he's speaking primarily to Jews at this, at this point, they would have recited this, some say, twice a day. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's, that's the beginning statement of what's called the Shema. And Jews would have stated this on a regular basis. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on and it says, uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So when he says this, he's saying this. You know the content of Christianity. You have, you, there's a theological basis to what you believe. There's like you, you understand some theological concepts, but there is something that is really missing. He says, you know the Shema, you know Deuteronomy 6.4, you can quote scripture, you know the lingo at the local church, you know how to put on a front, but guess what? Even the demons believe this and shudder, and it's kind of one of those, oh snap, he just got them, right? He just kind of put them in their place. And what he's saying here is he's saying, you know all those instances from the Gospels where Jesus is speaking and, or he's talking to somebody who's filled with a demon and they're saying, oh, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And oh, please don't send me to hell. Oh, 
These are demons who believe that God is one. Like demons who are eternally damned know this about God. And so when we think, oh, okay, I've got this theological knowledge. I know the lingo. I know what's going on. When we say that somehow that makes me safe with God, James says this, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything what you think you know. It's not doing you any good. It does, it does nothing for you. And in fact, he says, do you, want, you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's strong language. Just take comfort that he's talking to this imaginary person, but then take yourself and I'll do the same for me. Let's, put, let's all put ourselves in that position. James, James is preaching. James the preacher is preaching right now, and he's saying, Matt, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that your faith, apart from works, it's useless? So he's called faith dead. Now he calls it useless. It has no meaning or purpose. It is refuse. It is not doing you any good. And the claim that our culture has towards us is, is the same thing. What good is it if you claim to be a Christian, but you're a jerk to everyone? You never lift a hand to help people? You, like, your money is supposedly your own? Your, your, your things, your time? What good does it do if you go sit in church for an hour or an hour and a half? And you sing songs. What good does it do if it doesn't affect the people around you? It is useless. And that is true. That's true. So he gives two examples of how having the ritual of faith without the reaction of faith is proved wrong. We all have these rituals that we go through, but there's no reaction that's happening. And so he gives an example here of somebody who did do it rightly. And verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He brings up a, a, a father or the father outside of God of the Jewish nation. And he brings up this story that they would have remembered. And they, they remember this guy Abraham uh, very seriously. In fact, Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1, let me just read a little bit of this for you. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. His name was Abram before and now it's Abraham. God changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations. So, so the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's like, I don't have any kids. How are you going to make me into this great nation. How are you going to do this? And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And God says this to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So he takes Abram Abraham outside and he says look up you see the stars remember there's no city lights and so at night it, it is incredibly bright and he looks up at the stars and imagine this picture and God says look up there that's, that's what your descendants are going to look like see if you can count them then he said to him so shall your offspring be and it says this about Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So what happened there is this, is that God calls Abram out of this land. He calls him to himself, and he says, this is what I want you to go do. 
It's not because Abraham was a, was a really great person or anything like that. God just like shows unmerited grace to this guy, calls him out, and he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, of a great nation, I should say. And he says, I, th- this is what I'm going to do through you. And then and a- Abram says, I just don't believe it. And God says, this is what it's going to be like. And what happens is this, is that Abram believes God. He just hears what God says, and he believes him. Crazy, right? He believes God, and he says, okay. And God says, I see the faith that you have, and, I'm, and, and I see that you trust me. And God knows the heart. God knows what's going on inside of us. So like when we say, I trust God, God knows whether I trust him or not. God knows if that's a real claim. And it says he believed God, and God countered it to him as righteousness. And so what's happening here is that what has Abram done? What has he done to earn this? God's the one that called him, so really nothing. And really God calls him, and then he believes. And so what did Abraham do? He didn't do anything. God is the one who does something and makes him a promise, and Abraham believes it, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Now, why is that important? Because it comes before what James is talking about here. It comes before Abraham's great act of action, his work, if you will, that proves that what God did here in his life and Abraham's faith as a result is true. So what's he say here? Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. Abraham's been waiting for a son and waiting for a son. And he even, at one point, kind of loses faith in God and goes and has sex with his maid through the instruction of his wife, which kind of causes some problems, right? I mean, that seems like that's going to be awkward in the house, right? But God says to Abraham, I'm I'm going to give you this. And then he finally does follow through, and he gives him Isaac. And Abraham loves this son, Isaac. Like, he loves him, loves him, loves him. I remember I was telling my son I went to coffee with him the other day. And uh, it's not a very manly dude time, but I can't take him out for a beer, right? So, like... uh, and I, and I was just, you know, I'm just trying to think through, like, what, what, what kind of conversation should I have with my son? He's coming to a point of, of greater understanding, and we're kind of getting into deeper things, more than Transformers and whatever else he's watching. And so I, I, I just, I wanted to, to shower him with how much I, I love him. And I said, Marshall, I remember sitting in, uh, in the room, your mom was up on the, the bed, and they were doing the uh, ultrasound. And I, up until this point, I had said, you know what, I don't care, boy or girl, I'm fine with it. But as I'm sitting in that seat, I'm sitting there, and I'm going, oh, Lord God, I want a son. I want a son. Ah, oh. I mean, it just was coming over me. And not that I wouldn't have been happy, and not that I don't love my daughters, because I have two daughters. God knew I needed sanctification. And so I, uh, I, I, uh, I was sitting there, and I was like, oh, oh, Lord, I want a son so bad. And I, the, the thing is, I, I had thought through so many things, like I want to raise a son. Even as a young man in my 20s, I want to raise a son. I want to teach him what's right, and I want him, I want him to be manly, and I want him to wear steel-toed boots and drive big trucks and eat meat and shoot guns. And I'm, I, Yeah, that's, strike that from the record, but I... I wanted to teach him manly things, right? So I'm sitting there, and I, and I wanted to show him. No, I'm, I'm, in, I, I'm, I'm on two stories in now. So where am I at? I'm in the hospital room, and then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there looking at the screen, and I go, I think I just saw it. I'm pretty sure I just saw that. I'm pretty sure I just saw that. He was manly, I'm telling you. Like it's, 
And all of a sudden, she goes, guess what? It's a boy. And I was like, oh, Lord. And I told Marshall this story. I just said, buddy, I was so excited for you. I, I could not believe how incredible it was to find out that I was having a son. And he brightened up, and he was just, really? Oh. And he did, gave me one of those hugs. Dad, I love you so much as we're walking out and stuff. And it was so incredible. I think about Abraham. He's wanted a son all his life, and he didn't have to wait till he was like in his late 20s or early 30s to have a kid. He had to wait a long, long time. He was old, old, old. And he has this son, and God comes to him and says, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, um, Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Just like, that is the craziest story. Like, we're talking about child sacrifice here, right? I mean, that's pretty morbid. I mean, that's awful. But here's Abraham, and he follows through, and we could read the story right now, and it's just like, if you put yourself in that position, once you have kids and you realize how much you love your kids, you think about walking up this mountainside, and your son's like, hey, Dad, where's, where's the offering? Where's the lamb? And you're kind of going, that's a good question. And he says, God will provide one. And then he ties him up and lays him on there. And I don't know what Isaac was thinking at this point, but like, I mean, he's got to be freaking out. And Abraham raises the knife and God says, stop. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you really fear me. And why is it? Because you're willing to take the thing that you've waited your entire life for. You've waited your entire life to have this one thing, and you got it. And then I ask you for that and say, Abraham, give that to me. And he says, because you did not keep from me your son, your only son, I know where your heart stands. That's what James is talking about here. He says this about Abraham. He says, you see, like in this situation, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Because remember, way earlier in Abraham's life, it says, and he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Like God said this, because you believe me, I'm going to take my goodness and I'm going to give it to you. It's simply just by believing. It's not by what you've done. It's by, it's by what I have done. I'm going to count it to you as righteousness. But what's going to happen in your life, James says, is that if that truly happened to you, if you believe God and it's counted to you as righteousness, what's going to happen is that there are works to the point that you get to this place where God can say to you, take your son, your only son, and give it to me. And you give it to him. That's, that's what it is. It's not just like these small acts of mercy. Like It is those it's like, do you realize what God could require of you? And real faith says yes. Real faith says yes to God. Real faith says yes to his request that I give him everything. And then he gives one other example. And what's striking about this is that Abraham, he's the father of this nation of Israel. And so he's this high figure who everyone's looking to. He's like a prince. But then in verse 23, he brings up someone else. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 25, 
And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now we could go into the story of Rahab, but Rahab essentially was a prostitute. And God's people were instructed to go take down her city. So two spies are sent in. And they go to her house. And she says, I've heard of you. And I've heard of the works of God. And, I, and I've heard that he dried up the Red Sea. And I've heard the things that he's done. And I see that he's God. And so I want to help you. I see what God is doing here and I want to help you. And so as a result, what happens, she hides the spies. The king comes to look for them. She sends them out by another way. And what takes place is that, as a result, her and her father's home is saved before the city is taken down. It's a grueling story. But the story is about Rahab, who believes God, who who not only just believes that he is God, but then acts on that belief and says, okay, if that's true, then this is the way that I'm going to respond. I'm going to help God in the things that he is doing in this world. And then he's going to reiterate his point here in just a second. But probably the larger point is this. Is that you're talking about Abraham, who's this this guy who's kind of a prince in the Christian world. But then you've got this girl who's just as stained as the day is long. She's a prostitute. She sleeps with people for money. Like, how can that be that she gets in as well? See, I mean, I think James does this on purpose. He says, here's this righteous and holy guy, even though he did that thing with his maiden and and all this other stuff. But here's this guy who's looked up to you. But then here's this other person who's just had a really messed up life. And what's he saying? He's saying, both of these people have a role in the world. Both of these people have a role when it comes to faith. Like, I say that I have faith, but no matter my pedigree, no matter where I've come from, God has something for me to participate in. Her faith is also seen in the way that she responds. Who are you here today? Are you Abraham or are you Rahab? Because God does not look at where you've come from. God looks at you and he blesses you. And he says, I'm going to choose you. I'm taking you. And you must respond with faith. And if that's a real call from God, you're going to respond with faith. But you're also going to respond with actions. And he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith, I'm sorry, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He just compared this whole thing to a corpse. And he just said, like, if, if your spirit isn't in your body, you're dead and you're rotting. And he just called all of us a corpse, if that's where we're at. We're just in that place. And then he ends it. And he basically just said, you're in so much trouble (laughs) if you don't have works. I don't know what you're going to do. Good night. I mean, just kind of leaves us with that. When I started reading this passage to study it, the thing I thought of was this. I thought, like, but how? Many of us have read this passage, like if, you, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've read the passage, and you said, okay, but how? Well, let me tell you what, what is often said. You know, like when you're watching TV, maybe it's late at night, and then a commercial comes on about, uh, you know, the orphans in Africa, and they show you a picture of, of the little boy with the swollen belly. It's incredibly sad. It's a real situation. What are they playing on? They're playing on guilt. How can I sit here eating Cheetos while this kid doesn't even have a grain of rice? Like, how how can I live in my nice house while this kid does this? 
See, you can motivate with guilt. And you could motivate with, you're not going to be saved if you don't do that. But as I said before, that's an inadequate response. Like, you can't be motivated by guilt and say, oh, I better serve God, otherwise I'm not in. That's not motivated by faith. That's motivated by fear. And anything that comes from fear is not from God. And so you can't be motivated by a desire to say, uh, I, I want to be saved, and so I need to do good things. I want to be with Jesus forever, so I better do good things. That's motivated by fear. You motivate with guilt, and it's a very good motivator. We could stand up here, and we could tell you stories about how this person or that person, all, and we could make the story really good, and we could say these things are happening, and this is going on, and all this is taking place. And stories are good, but sometimes they lead to guilt. They lead to guilt. They lead to fear. They lead to shame. And so what's the right motivator? What's the right motivator for the Christian life or for the Christian to be engaged in good works? I have three things I'm going to tell you very briefly here. First of all, God's creation. God's creation of man, the pinnacle of his creation, is so valued because we've been created in the image of God. Western society, the way that we got to this point where we say all people matter, we should take care of the poor, we should not allow suffering to take place, we should not allow these things uh, to happen, we should participate in these things, wrongdoers should be punished. Generally speaking, this is where it came from. It came from the doctrine of the Imago Dei. All people have been endowed with inalienable rights by their creator. Where does that come from? It comes from the image of God. Because God has created us, therefore, because we've been created in the image of God, we deserve, we are deserving of dignity, value, and purpose. And therefore, we must punish wrongdoers, and we must help the poor, the weak, and the sick. The Imago Dei tells us about that. In fact, the Civil Rights Movement, led by Martin Luther King Jr., was enacted through this very same doctrine as he said this. You see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Your desire to serve your neighbor or to do justly by your neighbor has to be motivated by the fact that God is creator and he's created me and he's created you. And in fact, the very reason why you shouldn't murder and why you shouldn't talk down to people or curse your brother is because God has created us. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. That's the first thing. The second thing, God's justice. God is all about justice. And what what does this justice mean? When we think of justice, we often think of prosecuting a crime. We think of prosecuting a wrongdoer. And so we want justice for this. We want justice for this. But God's justice speaks to giving every person what they deserve. And what do they deserve? Look at, look at Psalm 145. I'm, I'm sorry, Psalm 146, verses 5 through 9. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. 
The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. That's the immigrant. That's the refugee. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Do you see what's going on there? God's justice is that everyone gets what they're due. An image bearer who's living in suffering and sackcloth and ashes and with no food as an image bearer deserves what is just and right as an image bearer that they have those things. God's justice as for image bearers is that they should thrive, that they should have life. You as an agent of God get to uh, pursue God's ends in the world. But God's justice also includes putting oppressors in jail. It includes protecting those people. So it's not only caring for the single mother, but it's also standing in the place and protecting her from her oppressive husband, if that's the case. It's protecting child sex slaves. It's protecting the poor in our city from being prosecuted at a higher degree and level than the rest of the richer part of our city. This is God's justice at play. Imago Dei, God's justice. Number three, God's grace. God's grace. It comes down to this. If you don't understand this, you're going to miss everything. I was so upset with everyone because of the toilet. But the truth is, there's something on the bottom side of that sucker. It was all my fault. I should have had mercy on everyone else because I needed mercy from everyone else. When I don't see my own stuff, when I don't see my own, what God had to forgive me for, I don't have mercy on anybody else. I act like a tyrant and say, you shouldn't have let this happen. Get out of my way, kids. I hate doing plumbing, and I don't think I should have to do that. Cursing the plumber who made the, the house, right? It's horrible plumbing, right? I don't have mercy because I don't, I don't see my own need for mercy. But Robert Murray McShane says this. He says, now, dear Christian, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. This is us. If you're a, a, a Christian, you're saying, I want to be made in the image of Christ. I want to be more like him. I want to be like that. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He quotes scripture. And then he lists some objections. Here's our objections to serving those who have needs. Objection number one, my money is my own. It's my money, I made it. I have these incredible skills that somehow I just grew out of nowhere. I have this great intellect that's able to make these things happen. And I've bought these things. Who are you? Step off, like this is my stuff. You didn't work hard. My money is my own. The answer is this. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and he came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. God, or Jesus could have said, am I going to waste this? My blood is my own. Why would I pour it out for them? Why would I do that? But he gave it to you. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one sheep that's lost. And not only that, but he sacrifices himself in the process. And he goes after you. And so we sit in judgment on other people and say, my money is my own. What's happening is this. You don't see forgiveness in its reality. You don't see the mercy of God as it truly stands. Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. And his answer is this. Christ might have said the same. Yea, 
with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give, give much, give often. Give because he gave to you. The third objection is this. The poor may abuse it. The poor might abuse it. They might take advantage of it. They might use it for dubious means. I'm just helping this guy. He's not really working very hard. Jesus could have said the very same thing about you, and yet every single one of us can think through this sermon today and just go, I have not served on the level that I should. I'm talking about me. I have not served on the level that I should. Every single one of us should feel the sting of, am I really a believer in Jesus Christ? And here's what a real believer says. A real believer says this. If I'm really a believer in Jesus Christ, then what is motivating my desire to serve? Is it out of fear? Is it out of guilt? Or is it out of great gratitude for the fact that he gave his blood, for the fact that I'm a wicked rebel and yet he dies for me anyway, for the fact that I, I've abused his love over and over again. And yet he has mercy on me. He has mercy on me. So here's what this means. Faith without works shows that people who claim to have faith don't understand what they've been saved from. They don't think that they need mercy. They're working on this toilet and they're cussing everyone else. They don't think, I, I ain't got any problems. I'm just helping this family out and I'm just like, oh, oh. that's what we look like. I'm, a, I'm, I'm this Christian and I don't have mercy on other people. Yet Jesus bled out for me on the cross. The driver of your works must be the justice of God and that he did not give you what you deserved, but he gave you mercy. He gave you mercy. Do you remember what it said a few verses ago? Mercy triumphs over judgment. He did it for you and he wants you to do it for others. May that be your driver towards good works Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think there's many of us in here, including myself, that have a great need for works of faith works that prove that we are yours. Not in order to be yours, but works that show what the inward reality is. Some of us have faith, have real faith, and we just need to be awoken perhaps even more often to the reality of what you've called us to. Lord, we ask you for this and we pray that you would awaken our spirits and our hearts to your deep and abiding love, your mercy towards us, that you did not give us what we deserved, but you gave us mercy instead of the justice that we deserved. In order for us to be just in our society, Lord, may we be a church of people who passionately pursue the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the migrant worker, the refugee, the marginalized, the poor. May we be a church that is characterized by these kinds of things, 
that it's not something that the church has put on or that we've programmed, but it just happens naturally. Because Jesus bled out for me, I can give my blood, I can give my money, I can give everything because God simply asks for it. May we be like Abraham who gives because he trusts you. May we trust you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.